1: Welcome to another edition of Around the Coin, the premier podcast for all things banking, payments, and fintech. Here are your hosts, Mike Townsend, Brian Romley, and Faisal Khan.
2: Hey everyone, welcome back for another episode of Around the Coin. We're excited to have the three amigos here Brian Faisal and myself, Mike. Uh, We have an exciting lineup today. We're going to do less topics and more in depth. We have a First, interesting topic, but before we dive in, Brian Faisal, how's you, how you been? How's the past week? How's life?
3: I've been doing wonderfully, Mike. Good morning, uh, Mike and Faisal. Uh, it's been an interesting week in the uh, United States. We'll dive into that. How you been? Good morning. Uh, doing,
2: doing good. Faisal, you've been planning a few trips. I know pre-show we discussed your travels all over the world.
3: Indiana right. Jones of Payments is on the move.
0: <laughs> well, let's hope it works out. So, We'll, 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 we'll apprise you of it as, as we go along. Nice.
3: Uh, Faisal will surprise us where he winds
2: up. I'll tell you that. Mm. <laughs> Mongolia. <huh>? No doubt. <laughs> Ulaanbaatar. <laughs> uh, well, I'm checking in from Santa Monica. Brian, you're out in wine country. No, short. I'm actually in uh, Rancho Mirage this weekend. Oh, Rancho Mirage. So. Okay, the desert. Yes, the desert. Right. Well, one one topic we had today, which was which was interesting, is uh, the hacking that went on. So somebody's been busy uh, breaking into Experian and Trump Towers. Particularly with the Trump Towers, the the hack on Donald Trump comes at a pretty timely point with his campaign. Uh, I'm not sure that it affects his campaign much, but it is interesting to witness. Uh, They didn't give numbers, I don't believe, on the number of people compromised with the Trump breach. But they did say Experian was 15 million people. And if you – I mean take a step back and just think about is this going to slow down? Like where are we in this cycle of, of cybersecurity? It's, well, well, it's pretty crazy.
0: The Trump thing has been happening since May 2014. That's what they sort of, you know, promised, uh, pointed out rather. Uh, so no one, I, I wouldn't say it's it's just maybe coincidental that's happening at the same time while he's running for the presidential bid. Uh, but it is something that is concerning. They, they really haven't given the numbers. I, I don't even think they've done the the damage assessment yet. And I think that's something that they're now doing, and they will probably have to come out with that number sometime. Uh, Maybe a couple of weeks down the road, maybe more damage control than anything else.
3: Yeah, I think it's more just the optics of having a, a political candidate and his name attached with a business that's being hacked. Um, I don't think it means anything else more uh, you know pervasive than that. You know, it's basically just another flagpole in the ground of where all of us stand. Our personal information, as far as I'm concerned, is public. If, if you have anything that's in a digital form, assume that it's being read by almost anybody. It's very similar to what my grandma used to say when I was a kid, and she said, "You know, operate your life as if it would be on the front page of the newspaper the very next morning." Unfortunately, that's starting to become the reality for most everybody, and I think your private information is going public in all different dimensions—stuff that you would probably prefer not to share. Well,
0: forget about I private think,
3: information, Brian. This is this is
0: financial information, right? One would expect well, that to be—that's yeah, uh, a private—that's about lockdown. as
3: private as it gets to some people, right? Because uh, your entire wealth is being uh, tied up until some of this. So I think what we're really seeing is this: there's an illusion of security. And um, it's not a failure of uh, technology. It's not a failure of people as much. It's the failure of re- realizing that there is no 100% perfect level of security. I'll give you an example. If we really wanted a secure home, we would have no windows, Right? If we live in a home with windows, then its easiest link of security breach is going to be glass, which I can kind of knock with my fist if I wanted to. So that's the same analogy when we're looking at security in the regular world uh, of, of technology. If you, want, if you want any sense of convenience, you're, you're going to have some sense of compromise. Um, and this is that example. And unfortunately, it's, um, it's going to get much, much worse before it gets better.
0: What countries do you think are responsible for something like this?
3: Well, you know, it's it's unfair <laughs> it's unfair to get to, to say South a Africa. country is it's unfair to say a country is responsible because that's a compromise of many people. I would say that there are two maybe three well-known geographic locations where a lot of hacks come from. And that may be correlated to the desire level of the individuals and also the technical uh, capability of the individuals involved. You have people that are Somewhat more advanced in some of these
0: countries, and they might have a, a political leaning to want so to do we these. we have acts. to remind our users that Brian and Mike are in America; they have to be very careful as to what they say. But I may yes, I'm not there, so I'll stay. <laughs> Thank you. So China, Russia, and what else?
3: Uh, you're part of the world. Sometimes uh, you know you have some brilliant people in India and Pakistan.
0: So um, there is <laughs> that, That's big news know. to me, my friend. <laughs> well you
3: know, definitely not you doing this um, mm-hmm. but you know I, I, it doesn't really matter because a hack really can come down to an individual and we found that in the ones that have been made public so you know again it comes down to on a financial level is the security of the payment systems involved and I think this is an important thing, uh, and it's very timely as America shifts to the Euro MasterCard Visa EMV standard, uh, or no, let's call it the compromised EMV standard, because in some ways it's already compromised. Um, so yeah, it, it's, it's, a, it's a desire to understand how deeply is the payment system secured, you know, I think
0: that's really you what recall, you is going to happen. We had the JPMorgan Chase hack that uh, was earlier this year, uh, or was it last year? I'm not sure, but that happened. I think it was early this year. Uh, we had that dating site hack that was the data made public. We had the Google hack where the emails went out. We had the Trump hack. We had a very new hack very recently of T-Mobile where 15 million customers are uh, lost their data, which is just basically personal details. Details. It is not to the best of my understanding financial details but personal data the data the kind of, you know customer support representative might see has been uh, now sure. basically in the open where are we going with all this thing i mean are we going to see a brand new uh, first of all will we see any regulations uh, concerning this thing and second question is uh, you know where are we going? To, where are we going with all this thing? I mean, all these hacks are now becoming public. Uh, you know what are companies going to do about it? Needless to say, they are going to hire and try to lock it down. But you know, well, Faisal, the the largest hack. Uh, well, let me say this: the most
3: important hack that ever took place was well, that, of the United the, States ad- government, wasn't it? The yeah. Adobe. Well, no, that was the largest, but the most important one. The important one was from a philosophical level: is the United States government was hacked, and the private details of anybody employed by the government uh, became oh, yeah. uh, compromised. This is probably the milestone uh, in history, because you know, in in any other uh, epoch, that would be equivalent to taking state secrets and an act of war. Uh, Today, we don't know what that really means. And maybe behind the scenes, there are things going on that we don't know about. But the fingerprints and all the personal data uh, of government workers, and this includes political figures, are now in the hands of potentially an enemy. Uh, That is a very compromising scenario. And I think uh, this plays to what you said about the question, what does it mean? It means politically, we're going to see after this new election Uh, A great will and desire to lock down information and to make people much more responsible uh, for these hacks. And I think we're going to see rounds of regulation that a lot of people are calling for, but maybe wish ultimately after it comes shouldn't happen. Uh, typically what what when, is regulation
2: going to do, though? I mean, that, what, are they, what can
3: they well, regulate? Before,
0: before we get to the regulation, I want to make you point.
3: criminalize it. You criminalize people. Well, it's you know, criminalized, that, that are right? But, but, yeah. my,
0: but my question is, isn't this like maybe the the prequel, uh, you know, the, the the start of you know shooting uh, cannons across the bow, you know, and just testing, you know, their armor and so forth before it goes into a full fledged fl- fight or something like that.
3: Yeah, in in a sense, it is that way. I mean, we may be living through an epoch where cyber warfare, if you want to use an old term, is already taking place. And it it, it certainly is affecting economies and economics. If you've hacked a system which may give you um, early information, maybe inside information about a a particular event which may have an impact on a stock or the financial markets, you are in control of the potential of billions of dollars trillions of dollars maybe and 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 an aggregate so this sort of financial war might be taking place right before our eyes it might explain some of the machinations of the market over the last couple of years uh the political war may already be out there if uh, if certain groups within government know certain things about other groups within government maybe that will uh cause some pressure and if world gr- individuals know uh, other things about other world individuals that might be going on. This might yeah. transcend it, 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 companies, it really, countries, and companies.
2: It's a, that's a good point. I mean, there's really two schools of thought, right? One is that we're inev- inevitably headed down this road of unavoidable uh, circumstance, right? Where. You know, uh, where there's, there's going to be like singularity and there's going to be um, just a world where er- everything is compromised and, and all data is at risk. Um, or you can look at it from when Kodak first published, first created their first camera. There was a lot of outrage where people were fearful that people were just going to be taking pictures on the streets. No one was used to this. And, and, you know, families were afraid that someone would just come up to their family and take a picture of them. Like the whole experience is new. And, you know, obviously that died away and that's not an issue anymore. And I think this this is either going to be one of those, like, it's one unavoidable trend that we go down for a long, long time or we just kind of get over it, like bank security, you know, where we just have better banks.
3: And well you know the, the whole the whole uh, fundamental aspect of banking is really security and trust. In fact, for, for a very long time, these were called trust companies, and that wasn't an accident. It was a way of, uh, of trying to reinforce. If you look at what a bank used to look like in early uh, Americana, it was Grecian-style columns, uh, this big safe, and your money was safe. Because there's a very real potential that your entire wealth could be stolen out of that bank and you're gone. I mean, in, in the old days, there was no FDIC. Somebody robbed the bank, your money was gone. And then you would knock on the door of the bank saying all the money's gone. Uh, similar types of things may start taking place, uh, not from a financial standpoint, not yet anyway. Uh, but, you know, from your private data, you know, certain things, maybe your pictures might be gone. Maybe if all of our pictures or videos and important information is is, is online and it's erased one day, what kind of impact will that have? It could be a really big impact for some people who've, who've decidedly trusted the cloud, and uh, trusted yeah. the cloud maybe with important financial information, maybe important other forms yeah. of information. Because this but, is corollary to that.
2: It does. Ha- you have to think that we're going to make systems more secure. I mean, this isn't. The, you know, technology just hasn't been invented. It's been around for a while. So, I, I guess now we're at a tipping point of more data than ever before is in the cloud, so there's more incentive to to go in and hack it, but uh, it feels like an ongoing battle that will...
3: Mike, the average person has a uh, five-character password, most easily guessable, right? And so one has to ask, why do they do that? It's because of convenience. There's a balance between convenience and security, and I'm not sure where that's going to play out. The company that really understands this and plays upon... Uh, making high security very convenient is going to do exceedingly well in the future. And let us mm. say it very clearly. Touch ID is an example of relatively high security on a, a mobile device with ultra-high yeah, convenience. You have to believe and that's, that's Apple, brilliant. Apple's drastically
2: brilliance. cutting that down. Um, cool. So what what are your thoughts on EMV? We had a great article come out by Brian titled The Horror of the EMV User Experience Fail. What's the What's the quick take on it before we dive in? What's your What's your
3: Here we are. Here we are. Four days into the EMV liability shift, as it's termed, because that's really what is going on from a merchant perspective. Consumers, it's a much different story. So let me just cover the merchant perspective. Fundamentally, a chargeback would be generated by all sorts of uh, scenarios. One scenario, most importantly, was when somebody used a counterfeit credit card at a physical retail merchant. So even as it extends, extends today, when a merchant accepts a credit card, they have to do a number of things. They have to examine the card for its authenticity and legitimacy. Is there a hologram on that credit card? Does it match the hologram that we see in the documentation that the, each merchant should be reading? Is there a magnetic strip on the credit card? Does the magnetic strip work? Is there a signature panel? Is there a signature recognizable there? Is there a CVV2 code in the signature panel or on the front of the card? Is there Are there raised letters and numbers, and do those numbers actually match what's on the receipt that's being generated for the merchant to keep? You know, there's a lot of different things that start going on. Okay, those are the early, earliest forms of verifying if a card was counterfeit. And even then, it was possible to create a, uh, what was a white plastic counterfeit, which is not branded and localized, just a white card with user data on the Mac strip. now into a much more, you know, multicolor, feature-rich card that looks like the authentic one. All right, so if I was a merchant and I accepted that card prior to October 1st and I swiped it through my machine, Visa and MasterCard generally would make me whole from any losses I would have because I seem to have accepted a legitimate card that was counterfeit. After October 1st, if you accept a card that has a chip on it and you do not insert that into the chip reader and it turns out that card is counterfeit, you're liable for 100% of your own losses. That is it. That is the only thing that EMV means today for a merchant. There's no PIN required. It just means that if I have a card that has a chip on it, and I swipe it instead of inserting it or dipping it into the EMV chip reader, I now take full liability over the counterfeit card. Take a step back. How many counterfeit cards are there really used in the United States at typical merchants? far, far few numbers. I mean, we're talking about one-eighth of one percent. Where are they mostly used? In automated operations like uh, fuel dealers uh, at uh, fuel pumps. And those are generally white card fraud that is a just a white card somebody got off of ebay by the hundred got a a magnetic stripping coding machine took a card number off the internet encoded it onto a card and filled up their truck or probably old hyundai uh, with this card and um after about one or you two tries that card is probably going to get deactivated and won't be used again that's what we're stopping with emv today united states that's called chip and signature and so how does chip and signature work in the United States as opposed to chip and PIN? And I'll contrast. Uh, to, today, well, or prior to October 1st, when you did a transaction as a consumer, either you handed the card over to the operator or the cashier, they swiped it and handed it back to you. Uh, if it was a customer-facing device, you swiped the card and you're done. You didn't think about it. You swiped it, you put it away in your pocket or your purse or wallet. After October 1st, with a merchant so equipped, you uh, hand over the EMV card. That card must be inserted in the machine for an undeterministic period of time. That time can be, based on network traffic, based on implementation, based on user experience uh, design, anywhere from 5 seconds to 49 seconds. So gone in America using an EMV is the convenience of swiping and forgetting. Now it's insert and remember, because you have to now remember your card is there. Now, why do I point that out? Well, after that card is given back to you, either if it's cashier operated, you're going to have to sign a physical receipt, just like you did prior to October 1st, and hopefully you get your card back. There's a lot of scenarios where that card might be forgotten by a number of individuals, either the cashier or the person using it or maybe variations. Because basically, the average human mind is only thinking about 30 seconds in advance and you can look at the empirical research in these types of retail settings. So if you don't have 30 seconds of memory, your kids are yelling at you, there's something else going on, you might forget your card. And that's not a th- in theory. That's exactly what happened in Canada when they did the EMV chip and pin uh, conversion. I'll get to that in a second. That's how it's working for um, physical retail. Restaurant tipping, an entirely different scenario. Okay, We're used to getting a bill on our table, then we give a credit card to pay that bill. The bill is a presentment of asking for some form of payment, uh, either cash uh, you know, uh, or you know, credit card. Some places still take checks. Uh, and then they go back and they do something called a tip adjustment on a credit card or, or, or a pre-authorization for a tip adjustment. This is very important. What is a pre-authorization? It's validating that that card you gave that uh, server has enough credit and you're good for it. So if it's a $50 bill, you're going to give that card over to the wait staff. They're going to take it to a device, swipe it. Prior to October 1st, they would swipe it, and it would come back with a credit card receipt for you to sign and one for you to keep. The one that you sign has a tip line. This is called the tip adjustment line. And this is an additive to the pre-authorization of $50. In the case of a $10 tip, I hope it's at least $10 because these guys and gals hopefully work really good. You lay down $10 into the tip line, and you total it up as $60. Now, you're gone. You're done. You have your card. You have your copy. You can now bolt from the restaurant. The server hopefully comes back at some reasonable period of time, takes that uh, slip back, And either in real time or at the end of the shift, we'll uh, wind up reconciling all those tips. Sign the receipt, you total in the tip, and you've taken your card, you put it away, and now the receipt's ready for the wait staff to pick up. They take that uh, receipt and they're going to total it up. They're going to take that ten dollars that you added to the fifty, and remember, we preauthorized that fifty dollars. I'm going to take that ten dollars, and we're now going to close out that transaction for sixty dollars. That's a big, important point because this is called a post adjustment uh, in, in the credit card world, but it's also a tip adjustment or or reconciliation or settlement. If that settlement doesn't take place, that merchant will never get paid. Very important. So this is an open ticket until the point of that $10 being reconciled. Now, a little interesting sideline. If the person totals it up to be $49, they can only charge 50 and that $10 tip is gone. So whatever is in the total is can be the only amount charged legally in the United States. Now, a lot of people don't challenge it if it turns out the other way because most Uh, Consumers don't uh, reconcile their bill correctly, but from a reality standpoint, that's what's going on. So let's call that $60. Now, what happened there? What happened is there was a post-adjustment. In the United States, as it stands today, the major networks and processors are not prepared to do this with an EMV card. Now, what does this mean at a restaurant? It means that instead of getting a bill, you're going to either have a customer-facing device being delivered to the table – like you see in europe which by the way only 1.8 percent of fine dining restaurants in the united states has and only about half of them actually use it 1.8 have this in u.s today it's not because they don't like the technology it's a thousand reasons why and we could do a whole show on it but not a single payment company has addressed the reasons why and i can tell you not a single startup has really fully addressed it correctly so what, what is the alternative? The alternative is not very pleasant for most people. Here's what's going to happen. If they're using EMV, because a lot of restaurants aren't, they will, will deliver to you a um, receipt for your uh, meal. You would then have to tell them, are you going to use a credit card or cash? If you use cash, the transaction ends. If you're using a credit card, they're going to come back and they're going to ask you uh, to total up the tip right there. And literally, they're gonna to have to stand there because what's gonna happen is they can only put one amount in the credit card machine and that's it. They cannot do a pre authorization and a post close. So they can't take the $50, pre authorize it on the card, come back, see that you gave them a $10 tip, and then do $60. Today, they have to see what the tip is first and then run the transaction. So if you're a skin flint and you leave a dollar tip, As a credit for your credit card, you're going to say, "Okay, here's my transaction for sixty-one dollars. Go run it." And this is a horror—a horror for restaurant owners. It's one of the horrors of the EMV user experience fail. So that's that's restaurant as it exists today. There are some technical challenges, and there are some procedural challenges why restaurants aren't doing this. But not a single one of the major networks have this down. They're working on it, but it's not
2: solved. So the so the gist, of it, Brian, if I understand you, is EMV allows you to pre-approve, and our current credit cards don't. So you can yeah. you can only run one total transaction with your credit card where EMV technically
3: can run yeah, technically the separate. EMV standard as it ex- exists today does not really allow a pre-authorization.
2: Uh, you and can that do matters it. Matters because you, you can because you want to run tips total exactly. second.
3: Well, you have to because otherwise it's somewhat embarrassing for the person to let the wait staff know what they're going to run while they're standing there. So that means the wait staff individual is going to know while you're still a patron at the restaurant what your tipping amount is, whereas most people feel a little bit more – I don't know. It's a psychological thing.
0: Secure. Uh, and restaurant. Yeah, yeah it's secure. It's also a very American thing. You have to say you know, say that as well.
3: Uh, this is 100% yeah. American. Europeans don't even know what I'm talking about uh, because they're used to the, uh, doing this a different way. And some people don't even tip in other cultures. So let's look at the other problem in the EMV user experience fail. Now, if I'm in uh, Target or Walmart and I have a customer-facing device, first off, as, a, as an average person with average eyesight, and in, in America, that means I wear reading glasses. The average person in America wears reading glasses. This is uh, the aging of the United States. So now I have to take a card. I have a one in four chance of guessing what direction that card needs to be orientated. And then I have to find a slot on this new credit card machine, which is not immediately obvious because it's usually black on black. Without any other uh, notification, and I've to yeah, insert
2: I mean, this. People learn that though.
3: No, <laughs> you they, they, they may. You can't say so the hardest part to, about the credit cards. There's more to, to swipe it. it, right? And more to it, Mike. There's a couple of steps involved. So let's look at the gyrations, and we'll compare and contrast. First, we have to orient that card. Now, imagine orientation with a group of senior citizens in front of you at Target during the Christmas holiday, and that happens quite frequently. They got to first determine what is a chip. And on a gold card and a gold chip, it's not really obvious to somebody with average eyesight to make that determination. It's a low-contrast scenario. Then you have to orientate that into the uh, device. Now, in America, we're used to swiping and forgetting. If they insert that card and remove it very quickly, guess what happens? Transaction has to be rerun in most POS systems because they just now failed the EMV uh, requirement of that card being in the machine until it's allowed to be rejected. Or or resubmit it to the individual. So what does that mean? It means that there is no apparent notice because there is no notification on these devices that say, please let me hold your card now. There's nothing that says that. So you insert it. You remove it. The poor cashier now has to say, and I've observed this in Canada, and I've certainly observed it in the U.S. over the last four days. I've been doing studies. uh, One of the biggest – I'm even doing it out here in the desert – I'm, I'm watching really flustered and frustrated cashiers saying, "Please, sir, just let the card stay in there for a little longer." And I, I watch one cashier. So this guy was, has been is in his mid forties. Is this
2: really a uh, is this really a problem? Like are other people across yeah. the world? Faisal, do you, Faisal, do you see? Here's why. Hold on,
3: let me using, tell you why it's a problem. It? We have a bastardized version of EMV. EMV PIN is not EMV signature. EMV PIN, you insert the card, there's a prompt that asks you for a PIN number and then when you press enter, the card is gone. You're you're done. You've completed the transaction. In the United States, there is no such prompt. You're inserting the card for some nebulous moment of when a receipt's generated that you must sign. Either you're signing the screen or you're signing a paper receipt. And then when that is reconciled by the uh, uh, cashier, then you're allowed to take the card out
0: okay so so let me let me give you my perspective when when uh, for example in in dubai uh you get both options so you go there you put your you know chip card in uh you do the thing and we run it we wait till the receipt comes out if you pull your card before the uh, transaction is authorized or was authorized or you were getting a return data uh, the transaction is automatically cancelled because the, after the return data has been received it sends a signal back, everything is good the card may be removed, if the card is removed before that, the authorization is cancelled I've had that happen to me but you know, we we don't even think twice we just go there 90% of the time it's a pin pad you type your pin, you're done, that's it No receipt. exactly, because that's chip and pin
3: and that's the proper way to utilize that antiquated technology um so again, what are we what are we fighting with EMV? We're fighting um, fraudulent transactions that come from a card which has not been authorized, all right? So that's somebody stealing a card and fraudulently making, stealing a card number and fraudulently making a card to be used in physical retail, which is not a major problem. The thing that EMV is not doing is it's not encrypting the data as it's being sent over the network. And people are being told that that's what this is doing. And this is what merchants thought it was doing. And merchants are going to discover that it does not change their PCI footprint one iota it does not secure the transaction that much better and it eliminates a problem that 99.99% merchants didn't have, and it increases levels of complexity when you want to make the checkout experience less complex. We are, we are the 1% on listening here and talking. We're the 1% that adopt technology and understand technology very quickly. I submit that the rest of the world is not really the 1%, and the, and, and the average American is going to look at this and say, what the heck? Not only do I guess that, go outside and ask any cashier that has experienced EMV cards at their register with a customer-facing device how incredibly insane it's become. Uh, The lines are growing longer. The average transaction that I've observed, this is not a guess, at Target – is now gone into 71 seconds when somebody is using an EMV card. Will that flatten out over time? Perhaps to a certain level. But some of it is a user experience fail because the notifications to the individual when they submit the card and when they can remove the card is not abundantly clear in a high, uh, distracting environment with a great deal of noise and contrast. Uh, you know, So you're sitting there and you're standing there and you're saying, okay, when is this transaction complete? I don't know. And the cashier doesn't necessarily know because it is predicated upon the speed of the network and all other factors and about two years ago i walked around a number of payment startups and i said guys this is coming you have a chance to do something with emv that was never done before let's accept the fact that emv is here because the card associations have made that choice it's a deterministic uh, fate what can we do as a tech community to make the user experience much better you know what I, I got? I think I – I got goose egg. I got zero. Well, You want to know what companies like Square do? They they make a a, a device even harder to figure out how to use as a customer. There's no apparent information on it. It's insane. It
0: it might just be a next step, you know, slowly uh, acclimatizing the Americans towards two-factor authentication, because even right now, 50% of the fraud (laughs) does happen in the U.S. credit card fraud. Right? I think it was much. But not this kind of fraud. But not this kind of fraud. It's coming from being stolen online. but, but, But exactly. So eventually, for example, many people don't know if you have to use your debit card online in the US it's very easy just go use it in Europe sure. if, if you have to use your debit card online it's not that easy you need a pin pad you need to pair exactly. it exactly you need to get the number you need to get the authorization so two factor authentication this is why even if you had my debit card number and tried to use it online it wouldn't work because it's tied to the pin pad this
3: um, is this I is think, why I, call- I think it's a, you, precursor make a great for point. that
0: right yeah. so maybe you say, say listen americans you want to reduce fraud You've got to change your habits slowly. Let's get the EMV thing going. Then we're going to then we are going to introduce you to two factor authentication, and then we're going to bring you to the pin pad.
3: Brilliant, brilliant. I actually, I absolutely agree. But you know, it's equivalent to putting three deadbolt locks on your front door and having a big sliding door open with a screen, not even a screen on, it, and people walking in because it. it, it you know, what we've accomplished by moving to EMV is just created a, a a more disturbed retail environment and a more disturbed user experience for payments. You know, I happen to believe and I I'm certain will come about, and Apple and NFC and Apple Pay and Android Pay are one of these precursors. I, I don't think America should have ever moved to EMV anyway. We should have we should have leapfrogged it. When we go out to, uh, you know, speaking of Mongolia, you go out to Mongolia in some of these new regions that are new towns that are building up, they don't even have a single landline. Uh, being installed in any of the homes. They bypassed the physical hardware and it went to a virtual uh, phone system utilizing cellular. In America, we should have bypassed the antiquated and unusable EMV standard, higher degree of user interface uh, where consumers can actually feel that there's something positive that's being gained by all the security. It should not have had an additional pain point. So I think it's old thinking. I think it's uh, me too thinking, unfortunately. And my heartbreak is uh, payment startups didn't rise to the occasion. They just got in line. And instead of being innovators, they said, yeah, here's my chip card reader too. And, and and all they do is regurgitate the reasons why there's EMV and don't really discuss what could be done to make it a much more pervasive interface. So that's my frustration. And I, why am I so frustrated? Because I see it through the lens of the merchant. I see it through the lens as a consumer. And I also see it through the lens as a, as a, a technologist and a payments uh, uh, person. As a merchant, it is slowing their lines down tremendously. It is frustrating customers. I already saw a customer walk out the door because he couldn't do the transaction. It refused to read a swipe of his magnetic strip, and the EMV system was not working. He walked out. The merchant lost a sale, and it wasn't a large merchant.
0: Well, he fast said, Please, food, sir. fast cars, fast women, and fast payments. Right?
3: Yeah, this is Americana, right? But you know, <laughs> the thing is, we're also technology analysts. We sit here and we analyze technology. Ain't there a better way? I mean, do we really need to be sitting there and entering pin numbers, uh, a four-digit pin numbers which are easily hackable to make a modern transaction in the United States? Is this is how good we are? I think it's it's insane. And by the way, if you go, go back to payment startups, they're not even set up to accept pin. They don't even have the idea. So There's a lot of stuff that needs to be innovated around. Apple is one of those things. That's why I applaud Apple because they sort of had the vision of seeing this coming down the road and say, okay, average person, you can use your credit card or you could just hold it, hover, and walk out. It's actually faster than a swipe and it's dramatically faster than the EMV card. But notice I'm not saying Apple is saving the day. There has to be a much bigger involvement here. And again, it's a startup opportunity of the decade for a startup that gets this and figures out how to do it with
0: a little I'm not, pain. Brian, I'm not sure if you're pro-EMV or against it, but you certainly didn't seem happy with it.
3: <laughs> I, I am. I am pro and against at the same time. I'm just not happy when we take steps backwards in the user experience
0: well, sometimes you have, sometimes you have to slip my friend before we get up right
3: i know we'll, we'll okay, see this true. holiday we'll we we'll, we'll regroup we'll regroup after this holiday season
0: yeah but i see. think
3: before that we're going to hear the horror stories
0: provided, you know, there's, no hack, this provided there's no hack or something like that <laughs> yeah right yeah so okay next topic a, a, great,
2: a great topic we have uh, Fine, so, why don't you kick this
0: one off? So, you know, Ben Milne, who's the founder of Dwala, he's uh, known to wow. speak his mind, uh, and I think Brian and I, we follow him quite uh, you know, in a very fanatical manner, if you will. Uh, he recently published an article. He published a couple of articles, but this one was pretty, uh, on his blog. Uh, it's benmilne.com and the article is uh, you know, uh, it's basically about all the blockchain. You know, there's been a lot of Noise and a lot of talk in the industry about how the blockchain is going to be used and how uh, banks are now, you know, going to be incorporating it or looking at it, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So he he's published an article. It's called "Building a Universal Ledger to Blockchain or Not to Blockchain," um, and it's a really uh, great way because he says, you know, in the in the actual blockchain. Uh, the use for the purpose of you know recording historical transaction is a database with default view all permissions. A blockchain is not possible always in the writable in desired time frame because of the network traffic, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And he makes a case why we need a different kind of a blockchain, which he calls the dollar ledger, and why that is the one which is really, uh, I guess, optimized for banking. It doesn't have a view permission, uh, view all by default. It's only viewed for the person it's meant for. It is real time. It is it, it is uh, something that it, basically he's breaking down the, the the traditional blockchain argument and saying you know that argument really won't hold in the banking world. Brian, your views.
3: I agree, and and by the way, I think Ben is just become very prolific lately i have always enjoyed his views I, I think just the last few months especially last uh, month or so he's become incredibly powerful on in stuff he's writing um i agree you know i, I think we're still in early days in all this and it's it's really good to see different different points of view uh different elements that are coming into play how do you, how do you see it from your part of the world i mean how do you see it as being meaningful
0: uh, well i i feel the blockchain debate is very much like akin to the vhs slash versus beta you know the beta to- uh, yeah and <laughs> yeah and and then add maybe 20 other you know different formats so i think we've yet to see a clear winner uh, you know, who knows? Oracle may just come out with the ultimate blockchain. Or, or Terminus or FIS or Fiserv may come out with the best blockchain because they believe this is what, is, is what banking needs. After all, they're in banking, right? So Terminus exactly. is, is not a name many people know. But like, for example, Jack Henry. Jack Henry may just come out with the ultimate blockchain ledger for the banks and the protocol. So um, I feel it's too early, but I, but I also feel that blindly following the blockchain itself as we have it today is perhaps not the right method but it certainly provides a platform a starting place to think about how you know such technology could be used may it necess- not necessarily be the same blockchain that we have in existence today but certainly gives you you know uh, some food for thought and say okay how can we how can i modify this to serve my needs
3: F- Faisal, don't you think that we really needed Bitcoin and all of its derivatives to come into the scene the way it did to actually demand the attention that it's gotten at this point? I mean, I, don't, I couldn't see otherwise how we could have gotten so transformative uh,
0: in such a short period of time. Does that make sense? It does. But, you know, I guess, you know, one of our topics is that, you know, uh, literally we've, we've labeled it in our pre-show uh, conversation as Poor Bitcoin, you know. <laughs> Here we are, yeah, all enthusiasts, all reluctant investors. Now, I'd like to use that word uh, into Bitcoin, having all bought it at God knows. Mike, I don't. know, I think Mike bought it at about eight hundred bucks and six hundred bucks for many of us, and so forth. Poor Mike, uh, that is poor Bitcoin. Yeah. So, I- so, so you know, Bitcoin has been taking a hit lately. The transactions are up. There's a lot of more adapt, you know, usability, but. Is it really making it mainstream? Not in my no. opinion. It hasn't. No, it's failed us. Maybe. Maybe in some no. way. No, but well, you know, I, I never thought Bitcoin
3: would be mainstream as it exists today. I mean, because it's really, it's really a crude, uh, crude open standard, techie API. If you really want to look at it that way, and that's like. That's like looking at what the internet was before the World Wide Web, and 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 Andreessen, uh gave us Mozilla, and uh, well, the early versions of uh, uh, of uh, web browsers. You know, you start looking at it and saying, "Well, how is it going to be utilized?" Well, it's the underlying technology that I think is really going to be the transformative element. And the thing is, Bitcoin is many things to many people. There, there's nothing broken with the existing macro payment system. Spending you know, sending ten dollars to a website if you're in the same country you could buy it and it kind of works. Where the fundamental breakage is is at the nano and micro level. And I believe, and I've said this for years, I believe that's where it's going to become most transformative as a payment system. Hmm. And uh, only when that becomes deeply ingrained into the protocols. So very much like, uh, uh, you know, uh,
0: HTTP is a protocol and, and well, uh, all the at, different well, other... If, you know, if I made, if I dare say, look at Stellar, look at uh, Ripple. Yeah. Not getting the traction that they wanted.
3: No, and, 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 and again, part of the problem there is I, I think that... Part of the problem with both Stellar and Ripple is that they're not mineable, and that's a big problem. So they they really took out one of the most strongest promotion points as a currency, and that's miners. Now, one might not like miners because they're smelly and dirty and they don't necessarily do the things you want them to do, but that's miners in every culture. But miners actually create markets and they actually build the infrastructure that make your uh, particular payment system viable. And that's one of the reasons why I think there's still elements of Bitcoin for nano and microtransactions to make sense. Mm-hmm. But if you're making a system that's going to uh, you know, sidestep the ACH network or SWIFT, that's something entirely different. But it's still fundamentally the same from a technology standpoint. Who's gonna secure and build that blockchain for you? Who's gonna make it pervasive? And the only way to do that I know of is to use the web model and that's called miners. See, basically, we're all sharing each other's data uh, from a fundamental standpoint. Let's look at it from a router standpoint. The router tables allow information to route through my router if I happen to be high enough in a hierarchy, even though that data has nothing to do with me. That's a very similar thing to building a blockchain, and we're already experiencing that. I mean, how many hops is I, re- I was watching a uh, a trace on a hop of an email I was sending from a private server. And it took 75 hops. And it was unfortunate because of the way it was routed. Uh, but it was interesting how many different routers it went through and how many private systems it actually wound up touching before it actually got to the recipient. So those that are in fear of the blockchain that they're not in full control of should fear the Internet because they don't have full control over the routing of their information and who ultimately gets to see it in the destination. Uh, it's, it's how you encrypt that envelope that matters. And that's, that's one of the problems. But getting back to the wider question, poor Bitcoin, is that if we just saw it as a currency, it, it was destined to fail, you know, because it was only addressing one segment of a concern, and that is utmost perceived privacy. And it's not anonymous uh, payment, it's tsunami, synonymous payment. That means that you could ultimately find out who that person is if you've given enough time, talent, and money. It's not fully anonymous, and Bitcoin never promised to be that way. The very first uh, papers, so it didn't. It, it, it didn't serve that, uh, and it's not serving uh, anything that's particularly broken, other than what I said—the micro, nano. No. But it has become, what I believe, an investment class that is quite superb. And now that it's looked at as a commodity, it's an in- interesting element I Mike, for people Mike to hold up. The
0: investment class of Bitcoin, right? <laughs> right, Mike. How's it doing, Mike?
3: Uh, Mike is—we uh, we hit Mike over the head with that one, but uh, yeah, I, you look at it from this perspective. Faisal, do you find a need in your part of the world to have to use
0: Bitcoin on a on a weekly basis? I do actually. I love using that's good. It, I love using it on Fiverr. Uh, it's yeah, very you know. easy. You know, I don't have to use my credit card or anything else or PayPal because PayPal is not here. Although, although I do have a PayPal account, but you know. I love using it on Fiverr. It's just so, so easy to use. It's a little uh, methodical, you know, you have to cut and paste and et cetera, et cetera, and do it within the time sure. before the price varies. But the thing uh, that I don't like is getting Bitcoins, buying them is a hassle for me, even in this part of the world. Yeah, why is that? Uh, the local exchanges are way too expensive, and, you know, I don't trust them, even though they are pretty good, etc. etc. et, cetera, et cetera. Uh, I would rather, you know, buy from what I would consider a realistic market price. Uh, even if it's $230, I don't want to pay $270 just to buy Bitcoin. Uh, see,
3: so. see, that's the whole thing. See, that's the other challenge that most people have is because of price, and I, that's a good thing for an investment class, but, but for a payment class, because the price varies so often, you're going to have to be bargain hunting to make sure that what you bought yesterday is valuable enough for you to use today. So you need dynamically dy- dynamically adjusted pricing, so that what you paid for Bitcoin yesterday isn't actually twelve dollars now, uh, instead of five.
0: Well, for me, it's uh, may not be an issue, but many people do look at money very uh, in a very you know minute aspect. For them, oh, yeah. if they are going to be spending a hundred dollars. They don't want to be buying $500 worth of Bitcoins. They're just going to be buying $100 worth of Bitcoins because this is what they have to spend now. They don't want to be putting, you know, buying $150 worth of Bitcoins and that $50 comes out to be $32 after four weeks, you know. So they don't want that.
3: Does that ever concern you when when the prices are varying? I mean, do, do you ever feel I, like, I it hey, um, I'm spending too
0: much? Yeah, I mean, you yeah. Know, uh, I, I, I so when I bought some Bitcoins at about, I think it was just 500 and some mark, etc. Uh, and, you know, it was still a bargain for me at that time. But when I spent it now, I felt, you know, oh my God, I bought this at 500 bucks, you know, and I'm now spending it and it's not worth what it was, etc. So, yeah, it you know, it does hit you. But if you're buying fresh at the market rate right now and you can... Just buy enough, um, which is, by the way, something very coincidentally Coinbase just came out with. Twenty six countries last week they came out with this twenty six countries where you can buy Bitcoin instantly, uh, and you buy as much as you want. So if you want to buy twenty two dollars worth, you buy twenty two dollars worth instantly, and that and I think that's a that, that's heading the right way. So let's see how it goes. So so why poor Bitcoin? Why do you think we're in this? Uh, sort of uh, malaise what do you think is causing it I don't know I guess we're just in a squall period you know just a squall period that is very silent nothing
3: more do you you feel as strongly as you did about it say a year ago have you wavered in your support it
0: would be conniving of me to say that, that I'm you know the same no it's not the same I think a lot of enthusiasm has died down and that is depressing in many ways a lot sure. many companies that I know who were getting into Bitcoin remittances, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, have shut it up. Many people have given up. You know, banking was an issue. Regulations was an issue. Some people are trying to get on board. But, you know, uh, most of the Bitcoin operators who are doing remittances, quote-unquote, are doing it illegally or gray, you know. So they are just hoping that eventually somehow it gets regulated to an extent where they become legal. Uh, and if the legal if the regulation process is way too stringent uh, they probably have to go out of business as well
3: now Faisal, this is right in your wheelhouse right remittances and bitcoin why haven't we seen that knock it out of the park type of company i mean is it just too soon are we got to wait half a decade two years a year is it not coming
0: I, i think it's early i think it's early and i and i I don't know. You know, I've I've written so much on this thing. I always feel value transfer using bitcoins will only be good if the actual dollars behind it also make it into that country. If they're not country, if you're just netting off and selling off in the local exchange, the country really hasn't gained a foreign exchange. You know, uh, the foreign exchange was loaded in Chicago, sent across to the world to let's say Manila. You've cashed out your Bitcoins in Manila. So that's just like doing a local transaction, right? That's like taking a check and cashing it locally. The foreign exchange sure. hasn't really entered you know, Philippines, and that's what's missing.
3: Now, Mike, uh, you've been talking pre-show that you're looking at all possibilities of what the uh, marketplace boarding process is like and how that might... Hopefully relate to the market as a whole, but how maybe it might relate to you know marketplace in the healthcare
2: uh, area yeah it's interesting i i uh, this was actually an inspiration from Andrew Warner. I went on the show the podcast Mixer G. I forgot to tell you guys this before uh, Brian, are you familiar with mixergy yes F- F- faisal have you heard of it never so it's it's pretty amazing he basically this guy Andrew he interviews. Uh, thousands of entrepreneurs, M um, I X E R G Y, and he brings on you know the the best people in technology to talk about how they grew their business, if they failed, how they failed, what they learned. Um, I I obsessed about listening to. that. I would listen to two a day. Uh, wow. When I was you know when I first started, maybe four years ago, I was just everywhere I went. I would just have it you know if I'm cooking, if I'm driving, whatever I'm doing. I just would listen to these interviews and it really gave me an awesome sense of how people think about growing their businesses. And uh, Andrew contacted me to to come on the show and talk about Home Hero and Flowtab and Zing. And it it was an honor. It was really awesome. And one of the things we talked about in the show was this study that we had conducted internally at Home Hero about the onboarding process of marketplaces and services. So we went through... You know, as I sit here, I'm an Uber driver, Lyft, Postmates, TaskRabbit, Handy, just about everything. Went through the onboarding process of all these companies, and we took a ton of notes and learned a ton, uh, but we never really collected the information and shared it with the world. So, in the conversation with Andrew, I was inspired to do that. And uh, by the time this show goes out, my goal is to have this article released on assessing the psychological and, and really minor differences in how marketplaces screen and onboard their supply side. Um, you know, now there's over a million people in this country who have participated in these marketplaces and services. Wow. And it's already gone as far as reducing our – our waste as a country in measurable ways internationally as well, um, improving GDP, and I think most importantly, building bonds with people in local communities. So it's really important to think about how we screen our supply side. If you if there can be a, a, an aggregated source of supply, you know, there's a couple of companies trying to do that where you can essentially go on there, sign up for a common application – And then automatically be enrolled in Uber or Lyft or TaskRabbit or Postmates, you know, all these guys. Uh, Essentially, the skill level between each of them um, is fairly minimum. But then some of the more specialized marketplaces like us at Home Hero with Home Care uh, require our own screening process. So it was interesting to go through really in-depth and learn about uh, the experiences. So I'll have that out soon. but wanted to bring so, that up.
3: Are there any takeaways? I mean, what what, what is it mm. that you see as a barrier Sorry. in these experiences?
2: So there's little things that that hint at larger things, I would say, in, in probably a not so nice way of explaining it. But one of the things I learned in, for instance, um, uh, uh, the onboarding process of Postmates is when you come in, they, they want you to not be on your phone and they view that as an important – uh, separation or in performance. Uh, Lyft does this as well. So if you come in, Lyft will pick you up. They have a mentor program. They're, they're fairly unique in how they do it. They'll pick you up on the spot with a driver that's a mentor that gets paid high, higher dollar per hour and he'll drive you around, explain how Lyft works. And if you're on your phone, it's a checkbox on their assessment that says he's not engaged with the experience. So they almost quantify people as different personality traits, if you will. And they look at indications that would, that would reflect how they perform on the job. So if someone's texting while they're going through the application process, this is a pretty good sign they'll probably be on their phone talking or texting while they're Interesting. Uh, but, and there's how, little things like that.
3: How, how has it impacted your boarding process at Home Hero?
2: So we pay attention to that. You know, that example, that very similar thing. So when people come in and they're on their phone – um, that's one of our grading assessments that we use. if they uh, you know one when you ha- you should you should know this one, Brian, when you have children and you're assessing a home care or a, a child provider, um you know city sitter, urban sitter, uh, these companies essentially have to go through this process of of screening thousands of applicants. Well, one of the things they use. Is when they meet people in person, and you could do this with your, you know, if you have little kids and you're interviewing a, a babysitter. As soon as they come in the room with the child for the first time, who do they engage with first? You know, say her name is Susie. If she comes into the it's in the room and she immediately engages with the child, she you know she goes over, she introduces herself, she talks to him. Maybe she sits on the floor with him, whatever. Versus if she's completely engaged in the sale of the of the you know of you as the parent. Um, if she doesn't pay attention to the kid, it's probably a good indication of like, does she actually care about the kid or not? You know, and, and you <laughs> this can see is, like...
3: This is important. I got to tell you that, you know, a lot of adults feel... There's barriers. They don't want to engage with kids because there's something creepy about it, especially if they don't have kids, they feel that, or they feel that it's disrespectful they should engage with the adults. But uh, I could tell you, uh, one of the things I find fascinating at hotels, especially family hotels, and even Four Seasons, which happens to be the best family hotel uh, in existence, as far as I'm concerned, is that the staff are trained to engage with the children first and to know their name and to have all sorts of things set up. They have their bathrobes set up in the in the bedroom. They have slippers. They have milk and cookies. They have little toys. These are things that are sound like they're really microscopic, but they're absolutely memory-making for the child and for the family. So you make a good point And, you know, I've always wondered, the distraction level of somebody in a part-time working environment, how does that do, – do you ask questions prior? I mean, how do you meter that?
2: uh so so say it again, so you measure the so the, the distraction, distraction level,
3: I mean, yeah, all right, so you have somebody who's going to be a caregiver and they're always on their phone and stuff like that. that's obviously a distraction level that they're they're not able to handle, right, do you measure other things like other jobs that they're doing, uh, other commitments how how does that work out
2: so you can look at things like um response time, quality of work is an indicator of that. Um, you can use uh, language and communication styles. There's also a, an increasingly popular study into the personality tests, sort of the Myers-Briggs, um, you know, sure. API, if you will. And I think that's that's probably the, the largest undiscovered or underutilized aspect to um, to these onboarding processes is understanding the personality types that go into who these people are. It's really the major. Component to the output of performance. Like if you're extremely genuine and slow moving, and 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 you know, passionate about what you do, versus if you're the the quick moving, you know, there's just different personality types for different. Uh, so you're
3: you're actively using Meyer Briggs in screening, or is it you're just kind of looking at it as a
2: reflection? We do, we do. I I can't say we use it to the full extent, or. Uh, have really unleashed full potential, but we use it in our our screening process in person. So um, could you could you really reach
3: possible. out? What is the is there an ideal Myers Briggs for somebody in the marketplace world? I mean, or specifically for your sector? Have you yeah, have you been able to get that quantified?
2: For us, we're much different than than anything else. You know, even I think the difference between cleaning, you know, Handy, um, our head of growth, Joe Nigro, he he was for a a few years at Handy. He sold his company to Handy and then they went out and beat Homejoy and became the largest on-demand cleaning service in the world. So they... Understand this, but they still don't really utilize personality types and, and assessments. I think even the difference between a cleaner and a home care provider is so strong. Tr- you know, a cleaner yeah. wants to go in. Their objective is like they're they're in and out. They want to go in and, and get as much work done as possible. They're not you know really talkative people. They're not really. Um, I would call it empathetic people, they're, you know, hardworking kind of, you know, that's the mindset. And I think it's a different mindset than one who will sit with someone for three hours, right. And just be with them. Um, so those are things you can kind of screen for and, and it's a, a huge factor in the, in the outcome.
3: That's awesome. Uh-huh. So, so you really want somebody in Home Hero that's empathetical and just caring and, and, and nurturing of the individuals they're working with. And that obviously yeah. is going to really factor in on the whole experience for everybody involved. I mean, does that take more time to find empathy within people? I mean, to me, it just sounds it is harder. Uh, it's a harder job uh, than just to find somebody who can drive a car really well and take directions, for example.
2: I'm not sure it's a. I'm not sure it's a timing issue. More, it's really attention to the detail of uh, behavioral psychology. You know, did I lose you? Uh,
3: yeah, I'm here. I'm sorry, I just kind of
2: got um, knocked off. Uh, yeah, no worries. Uh, I, I think it's less about the timing and more about the attention to detail. I think we're still in such early stages of these companies of being able to really fine tune the screening process. Um, but yeah it's it's really interesting study it really combines technology with psychology um and understanding what motivates people sort of the gamification of of performance as well
3: now you but, gave a speech uh you gave a speech in Washington DC can we talk about that today because I, I think it's very
2: interesting yeah it's, I'll mention that briefly and then we'll wrap up. So the speech this past week was a presentation to the largest senior facility conference in the world. So these guys are bankers, they're developers, they're entrepreneurs, but all in the senior facility developments called NIC, Nick and uh, me, along with a few other keynote speakers presented uh, information. My topic was on how marketplaces and how technology is changing home care. So really the idea was to take take home care and, and position it as one piece in a larger, more economic, a larger economic shift. So, you know, I put up a bunch of logos of other marketplace companies. There's over 40 marketplace companies in over uh, 10 major markets in the U.S. And that number is going to grow incredibly fast as this really consumer behavior shifts. There's really a, a psychology change from buy first to rent or exchange first and you can start to see that now between Uber and Lyft have raised $10 billion. Every category in Craigslist, if you go on Craigslist, is being replaced by a billion-dollar marketplace or service. And I think home care is going to be no exception. So just talking about that shift was, uh, was, the, uh, was the intention of the speech.
3: Was it well-received? I mean this is really new information even for people in technology. I mean your bullet points are pretty powerful. Uh, how did they receive it? Yeah.
2: Yeah. I wouldn't call them technology folks by any means. These guys, uh, I think, received it well. I think there was a lot of interest and, and perplexity. Uh, there wasn't much fear. It doesn't necessarily impact them negatively in any way, no, no, regardless of how it unfolds. Um, but there's a lot of – it's almost like you're caught with your pants down in way. They just – they didn't quite – they admitted that this was going to be a huge thing, but they just admitted that they didn't know much about it. Um, it's almost like you know, if you didn't know what the internet was, and someone showed you a computer, and you're like, "Oh yeah, I kind of use that." Because they were all familiar with Lyft and Uber, but they haven't really thought about the more larger um, economic implications of the of the technology.
3: Interesting. I think we're so, going to be hearing a lot more about platforms and marketplaces. Uh, yeah, no doubt. Well, yeah, I love it.
0: It's been a pleasure to have you over here and we will wrap it up and we'll put this out very soon and we'll speak again uh, next week and we have a guest speaker next week we have a uh, peter Rosher from moneygram who we'll be interviewing next week and very
3: uh, excited very yeah, excited so i think a lot of people are going to love to hear what the, they have to say
0: exactly so take care right. have a good weekend we'll speak to you later thank, thank you thanks, guys bye-bye Bye.
1: Thank you.